He's a Bassmaster Elite Series pro that's won a Bassmaster Open and now is a two-time Bassmaster Classic qualifier. This week, old Bob Downey joins me on... I'm Bob Cobb for the Bassmaster. Welcome to Mercer. Welcome one, welcome all, friends, family, fishing freaks, freeloaders. You're all welcome here at the Awkwardly Honest Fishing Podcast that goes by my last name, which is Mercer. Happy Wednesday, happy hump day. It is Wednesday, September 28th today. Hard to believe this is the last show we're doing in September. This year is freaking flying by, which... With that in mind, I appreciate that you guys take an hour to two hours a week, whatever it is, and and eavesdrop on these awesome conversations that I'm lucky enough to have. Because to be honest, that's my favorite part about this show is just really getting one-on-one time with people I work with, people who I consider friends. But you, with everything going around, you just never get that one-on-one time. And this is basically what this podcast is. It's a one-on-one ease. You get the eavesdrop in a conversation that I have with um, a big somebody that's a big part of this sport, whether it be a tournament angler, whether it be an industry person. This week, it's a tournament angler. And it's one that some of you might not know a lot about. Oh, Bob. What about Bob? I mean, he's, he's just a quiet guy you know doesn't do a lot of talking does some talking on the scales um but he's just a great human being salt of the earth human being and the, and the reason he has the nickname yeah well we'll talk about it in the show but the reason they came up with nick i mean it was just throwing at me from joby and tim from Minkota. they said hey he's old bob and I was like, well, why is he old Bob? But, but when you get to know him, he, well, he's old Bob. I mean, he's old Bob for a lot of reasons. He's the world's oldest young man. Um, but he's just old Bob. I mean, you can just count on old Bob. It's not an age thing. It's just give old Bob a call. He'll help you out. And that's exactly what I'm going to do right now. We're going to go to Detroit Lakes, Minnesota, and hook up with old Bob Downey. Oh, Bob, this interview started exactly as expected. You were right on time. All your gear works. I mean, most times we have a guest on here where I have to spend 10 minutes with them while they figure out how to prop their phone in front of a Plano box and a spool of line. But you, uh, you're in your office. you got good audio. You're all put together. Exactly how I would expect old Bob to be. Yeah. I mean, I try and come prepared. It doesn't always happen that way, but... Um... Yeah, just at home here, so pretty easy setup to log on with you. Thanks for having me on, Dave. Appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, well, thanks thanks for being on. I've wanted to have you on for a while, and, and I think I should probably start with the most obvious question because people may or may not know this, but I didn't really clear it with you. Do you like being called Old Bob? <laughs> I don't mind it. I think when Dave Mercer gives you a nickname, you got to just roll with it and uh, – so I, I don't mind it. I think I don't really know what it means, honestly. I think like old old is kind of maybe like a good old boy laid back connotation, perhaps. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, kind of fits. I mean, what does anything mean? Is really, that's I mean, it, it it means different things to different. But I think, but I th- that's how I kind of took it. 
they yeah. were like, uh, we, I mean, how it happened, but you know, the story, but for those that don't know the story is, uh, Joby and Tim from Minkota yeah. Humminbird, where they said, we got this new guy this year. We need your help with him." And I'm like, what's the deal? And they're like, old Bob. And I said, old Bob. And they're like, no, not old Bob. It's old Bob. OL. They were very specific with this. Yeah. And they said, um, you'll know when you meet him. So I'll be honest. I started calling you it just because I like those guys um, right away. But as I got to know you, I think it does. You are very laid back and kind of mellow. And it's weird because there's people who want nicknames that have been on tour for years, but you just got one because of a weird conversation I had in the service department. I got lucky, I guess. Got one right out of the shoot without even doing anything on tour yet. So, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll roll with it. I think it's caught on now. I mean, everyone I run into at a show or, you know, at a tournament seems to know it. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm glad you don't dislike it. It would have been actually probably would have been the best thing for this conversation for us to get in a big fight right away. Cause then <laughs> people would love this chat, but who is old Bob Downey? Like who's, what about Bob? What were you like growing up? Is that because I, I, from the outside, very put together, very kind of thought out. I feel like you, you were the exact opposite of an idiot like me, where I just jumble words and sooner or later, I hope some of it makes sense where your words seem to be thought out. You seem to be very precise in your approach to things. Am I reading it correct? Yeah. I mean, I would say so. I try and be prepared. I think that maybe comes from, you know, my parents are, uh, especially my dad is like a, a super planner, like even more so than I am. So I grew up around that. And so I've kind of taken it, um, you know, through college and into my career right out of college and now into the fishing industry, some too, from a sponsor standpoint anyways. And, um, I treat it like a small business, you know, I'm not really doing this just willy nilly to, to try and get by, I try and, you know, treat those sponsor partners as business partners really. And so uh, maybe that's part of where it comes from my business background a little bit, but yeah, yeah, that's, that's probably where it stems from. Do you think that makes you different than a lot of guys on tour, the way you analyze the you know you've spent enough time what is this would you finish your third season this past yeah. year yeah so yeah. you know now you spend enough time with people now do you do you think there's as your personality is the norm or um i think it's probably not the norm necessarily i do think everyone has their own personality on tour and that's what works best for them and that's the way it should be, honestly. Yeah. It'd be pretty boring if we were all the same. Um, so, you know, I, I might take a little bit more of a business approach to it than most people just because of my background. And I came from a, you know, a, working for a small company that was kind of numbers and finance based before I got into fishing the Elite Series. So um, that's maybe where it comes from. So those two things seem like polar opposites to me, you know, like, I mean, when you think of like, when I think of somebody taking the leap to become an elite series pro, yeah. and then I take like finance background, it's almost like the opposite because there, there is so much of it. Like if you just lay it out on paper, it's, 
you can treat it like a small business all you want, but it it's not an easy small business to jump into. You could get a lot of franchises from a lot of businesses that were a lot less risk. Yeah. The, have you always been like a, being a business sound? Like where did you see the risk when you laid it all out in front of you when you had um, the opportunity? Yeah. I mean, so I got, I guess a little background in college, my degree was finance and then I worked for a company for 10 years prior to qualifying for the elites. And I really enjoyed what I did, was making a good income, um, but it became time for me to like, when that opportunity came along, I would have really regretted it if I didn't take the opportunity to try and make the elite series and fishing a career work. And so there was obvious, I, I understood the risk but kind of having the background that I had the last 10 years, I kind of set myself up financially to be able to take that risk that if it didn't work out, I still had, you know, some opportunities to fall back on. Um, the more I get into this, the more I realize that how, how like committed you have to be to be yeah. successful at it. It's, you know, no different than any other job and anyone who's successful at anything puts 110% into it. And so the more I've done it, the more I've realized how committed you have to be to be successful at it. You might see, um, you know, guys that from, from a distance might look like they're all over the place or they're unorganized or, you know, they're jumping from one couch to the next couch traveling across the country. Um, but deep down like those guys are giving it 110 percent, and they're super dialed into what they're doing and there's a reason why they're having success so um you know as i've got into it more i realize that you know the less of a backup plan you have generally the better you're gonna do at what you're focused on at that time yeah i mean yeah when you are on a tightrope i mean there's no other direction to go than to make it right. successful yeah. How does such an analytical person like yourself have success? Because if you look at all the people that I've talked to on this show, you know, one of the guys who you have history with, Seth Vider. I mean, Seth Vider will tell you when he started caring less, it got better for him. So how does yeah. somebody who has such an analytical background relax yeah. enough to let it happen? Yeah, I feel like that's a been a learning process for me that I'm getting better at. Yeah. Um, you know, there's certain parts of what we do where being analytical can help you like preparation and being organized. And um, I think if you sat and really got, I know, you know, Seth really well, but if you're yeah. sitting in his boat and watch him prepare for an event, I think he's probably more like super dialed into his tackling equipment than maybe most people think he is. Yeah, very. So there's like that aspect of being analytical that is super important in our sport, but like the on the water tournament decisions on the fly, forgetting what you did in practice and just rolling what's happening that day is more of the like, you know, flying by the seat of your pants, not as analytical and more so drawing on your past experiences and not being so analytical in the moment that it almost like makes you freeze and you can't make the right decision sort of deal. So I think that's a part of my tournament fishing that I'm continually working on and, and 
I feel like this season I did a better job of it. And a lot of it is just, you know, fishing new water in the tournament, which I know we talk about all the time, but um, that's simply what it comes down to is just fishing new stuff, fishing new patterns and techniques in the moment, more so than I have in the past. So is, is that something this time of year that you start going through? Like, is that a through the year thing that you're assessing and reassessing? Or is that like an end of the season? Okay. Where I was, where was I strong? Where was I weak? Just like most businesses would look at things at the end of the year. Yeah, I try. I don't do it often, but last year I caught myself having like terrible day twos. Like I'd have a really good start to the event. And then I'd fall off on day two. And I tried to really like pinpoint what was causing that. And a lot of it was just not adjusting on the fly properly. And yeah. I'd take what I found in practice and do okay day one. And then things would change. And I just wasn't adjusting with it. And so this year I felt like I did a better job of that. And also just hanging in there until the latter hours of the day. Um, you know, I feel like in the past I'd get spun out early in the day if I didn't catch a limit in the first couple hours. And now I just fish more relaxed and confident that at some point during the day, it's going to happen. Um, whereas in the past, it might've spun me out to the point where I couldn't make the right decisions later in the day. Like I, I feel like I'm doing a better job of that now. How did that change? Was that just experience just going yeah. through it repetitiously? Yeah, that and just getting more comfortable on the elite level, I think. You know, I've fished tournaments since I've been 14 years old. So I've fished tournaments for 20 years and have had success locally and regionally and at the college level and the opens. But there's just that sense of getting comfortable at the current level. For me, it takes me, you know, a couple of years, it seems like, whereas you might have a guy like uh, Shakur that, you know, is hot right out of the cannon, but not everybody is a Jay Shakur. And for me, it's usually takes a couple of years to get comfortable at that level until you, you just, I know it's talked about all the time, but just kind of doing your own thing and not worrying about what everybody else is doing and focusing on yourself and you kind of come into your own a little bit, I guess. So what was happening the previous years where, where you felt you weren't as strong there? you were just following doc talk or trying to fish um, the way people were telling you you had to fish in areas or. I don't think I really ever followed doc talk so much as just lacking the confidence to be able to compete at that level. Um, you know, like when I fished the opens, the one year I fished them, I don't, I didn't work with anybody. I never talked to anybody about what was going on. I just kind of did my own thing. And it, in a weird way, I had, a, I didn't have a lot of pressure that year because it wasn't my intention to try and qualify for the elites right away. It just kind of happened that way. Um, and then when I got to the elite series, all of a sudden you're kind of in the public eye a little bit more and you put more pressure on yourself and you wonder if you can really hang with these guys. And it took me a couple seasons to really have a few better finishes to understand that, okay, yep, you you can compete at this level. Just go do your own thing. Don't worry about what any, everyone else is doing. And, and that's kind of what I did a better job of this year, I feel like. Is it just actually having success, you know, making cuts and stuff that allows you to feel that comfort? Or is it just it, 
or is there more aspects that are learned through that? Is is it just totally comfort and knowing you can do it or, or is it, I'm not even thinking about takeoff and stuff like that anymore because I know I've done it. So, you know what I mean? Like repetition has to become a big part of it. I would assume. Yeah. Repetition for sure. You know, you're not starstruck at takeoff, you know, like I might've been the first one at the St. John's my rookie year. Um, you just, it's your everyday life. Now it's what you do. It's, you know, what I've done now for, I had like zero tournament experience on the national level when I showed up three years ago. And now that I've done it more, traveled across the country, know what to expect. Your your mind isn't focused on those things so much as it is just on the task at hand. Yeah. Which is catching bass. So who who was the most intimidating or the most starstruck? You think back to that first tournament. Who who did you, you know, end up floating up beside or running into um, that you were like, Oh boy. I mean, Rick Klun is as nice of a guy as he is and down to earth. Once you get to know him, I've got to know him pretty well the last three years. Um, it, it's more, it's more so like, how has he ever done what he's done? Like how has he won what four classics and still competing at 75? And that's what, shocks me more than anything um so he would definitely be one right away yeah yeah no and, and if he has like a i always talk about it i mean there's an aura around rick clun like there is a he, he's freaking rick clun it doesn't matter what you know you say like i mean i know him and i've known him for a long time but but uh you're still like a few times this year he came up and gave me a hug and I was like, and me and Overstreet would joke about it because on the same morning Overstreet got a hug and I'm like, Rick Clun hugged me today and Overstreet's like, bro he hugged me too <laughs> it was like just a big like but it's freaking Rick Clun, you know what I mean, he is he is um, nobody's ever done what, what he's done and could you see yourself doing that or is that even because I'm sure in his mid thirties, he didn't see himself doing it either. No, not till age 75 or 76 or whatever he is. I mean, I know what sort of physical toll it takes on your body at age 34, let alone you know, <laughs> 40 more years. It's <laughs> no way. Yeah. It's uh, what, what he does is truly incredible. So yeah. you fished your first tournament when you were 14. Mm -hmm. tell, tell me what like there's these hordes of people that followed you at the last two events of the year which was awesome they were so yeah. vocal and so awesome but i know that you've been doing it for a while because that's where those hordes of people come from those you know they end up following and it's not just you but like i've spent enough time with that group of people that follow seth that follow different groups you know it, luckily if you're lucky you have that group that supported you but they only happen because they've seen you do this for so long and they, you know, and Bob was the guy that, Hey, if he ever could do it, he, and he took the shot. So hanging out with the people that follow you, I know that you have a probably rich history tournament fishing, but uh, yeah. 14, it started. Tell me about it. Yeah. So I grew up in Minnesota, like twin cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Seth and I grew up like 20 minutes from each other, um, you know, neighboring towns, same area. And I started, fishing junior tournaments for the Bass Nation 
at age 14. And then they didn't have high school fishing at the time, but it was just their junior program. Did you know Seth then? Like at what age did you meet each other? We were, I was 18 when I met Seth. Oh, like when you fished the pro-am together. Yeah. Yeah. There was a pro-am circuit in Minnesota. Um, and we got paired up together on, if Minnesota guys are listening to this, it's on Green Lake and Spice for Minnesota. It's a really good smallmouth lake. Still is, just not the size anymore. And we ended up winning that tournament. I think he was like 22 and I was 18. And then I went off to college after that. And he went off to fish, you know, more regional events. And I think eventually some FLW stuff and then ultimately the Opens. And so I kind of followed his career as I went to college and fished in, you know, college tournaments. And then I came home and fished um, more regional like team events. And I, that's when I moved to Wisconsin for work. And I lived in Wisconsin for like 10 years, uh, but I'm not from there originally, but it put me closer to the Mississippi river. And so I fished bigger events on the river for like 10 years uh, after college. And I feel like that's really what prepared me for the elite series was fishing the river that much because it just changes so much day to day obviously every lake goes through seasonal changes but the river day to day changes tremendously just water levels and all that sort of stuff um so then you know after doing that for like 10 years and fishing a bunch of bass nation stuff along the way like state but before you go there i totally cut off your 14 you were starting at 14 and i jumped up to 18 because tell me real quick before we because i'm going to forget about it and i'm an idiot at doing this so your first tournament was when you were 14 i jumped you forward to when you met seth fighter at 18 there was some a lot of stuff happens in a boy's life from 14 to 18 bring me up to speed yeah so i mean growing up in a suburb of the twin cities we had ponds and lakes all over the place so i would ride my bike and fish these ponds like daily around egan was the town i grew up in and so that's where i learned to bass fish was riding my bike to these ponds and then my uncle gave me a canoe when i was 16 and i'd strap that to the top of my little trailblazer and bring that down to the ponds and then we ultimately got like a 14 foot boat we put a live well in it and that's what I fished a lot of club tournaments out of you know when I was like between 18 and 21 years old or so I just had a little 40 horse on the back and I fished club tournaments out of that and then progressed into college and then Bass Nation stuff around the house after college so there's definitely a progression there you know like a lot of kids that are ate up with fishing they're that can't drive your biking at first. And then maybe you're in a little rowboat and then small tiller and finally a 1987 bass boat in college. So there's definitely a progression there. And, but that's how you learn. I mean, fish as much as you can as a younger kid. I, you know, as I progressed into college and after college, I didn't put a lot of effort into sponsors and partnerships. And I just fished as much as I possibly could. And smart. uh, never really had any sponsors outside of one all the way, you know, up until I qualified for the elite series. It was just one of those deals where I felt like I hadn't really done anything to attract sponsors. I didn't want to spend the time doing that. I want to spend time learning how to catch bass and that stuff would take care of itself if it ever got to that point. 
how old were you when you first started when it first like hit you where you're like man maybe i can do this for a living maybe i can be one of those guys um in 2001 i happened to see the bassmaster classic down on the delta the one that kevin kvd yeah and that was like the moment where it really hit me that hey this is a thing i think i was born 87 so i was 14 at the time and then soon after that i started fishing junior tournaments and it slowly progressed from there and always had the dream of doing it but got a good job out of college and worked for 10 years for that company um still worked for them a little bit on a smaller scale um and it got to the point where it was like if i'm going to take a chance and try and do this thing um, I, I got to do it now rather than later. And I, I was, I think, 30 when I jumped in the open. So kind of a little bit later in life compared to what you see a lot of kids coming out of college and fishing the opens now, um, but still young enough where, you know, if I want to and, and able to, can still have a long career ahead of myself. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that in retrospect, I mean, things are going fairly well for you, I would imagine are you you think you started at the right time or or like if you would have started five years earlier is that better or do you think that that you'd probably still be at the same spot because there'd be a lot of learning to do yeah i think five years earlier probably would have been better in hindsight now would i have been financially able to five years earlier and like financially as comfortable probably not it would have been a bigger risk. Um, but for some people at that age, it's just kind of roll the dice, see what happens. For me, I've never wanted to like max out credit cards to try and do it or to like really try and use a bunch of personal savings to do it. So I've been fortunate since I started the opens, I've just been able to really use what I've earned and through tournament winnings and sponsors to do it. Um, so five years earlier would have been probably ideal, but financially it would have been a bigger risk for me. Yeah. And it's, as you already talked about getting comfortable and stuff on tour, I mean, you, it's really hard to get comfortable when you're financially strapped. I mean, yeah. that's one of the injustices about the sport. If you ask me, like you, I think about the people that came too early, like there's people that come like, and it works great for Jay Secure. You know what I mean? But it could also destroy a Jay Shakira. He could come and have two bad years, get eliminated from the elite series. And just in his head, say, I'm never, I'm not, I couldn't do it. I tried, you know? And, right. um, but I mean, Jay Shakira is a bad example because he seems to get success. I mean, have you known him? Did you know a lot? Did you know him before the elites? For like a year or two leading up to the elites, I follow the tournament scene in Wisconsin a little yeah. bit. And he was winning everything. And he's like, he was, I mean, he's still very young. So he was probably 19, 20, 21. And he fished um, as a co-angler on the opens. Yeah. One. On two of them. What's that? Two of them. He won yeah. two of them. Yeah. Yeah. And my first main introduction to him is he won the co-angler division on grand. And that's the one I won on the pro side. So 
that was kind of a cool deal. He won that week as a co-angler. And since then I've started to follow him and all of a sudden he's just, you know, on fire. It's, it's incredible what he's, what he's been able to accomplish. Um, But speaking of him, and if you put like Seth, um, Austin, Austin, Every single one of the guys from your part of the world, Pat Schlopper, um, Caleb Kufal. It's so weird because I look at, I I watch a Green Bay Packers game and there is maniacs in the crowd. You watch Minnesota, there is maniacs. But the most mild-mannered, quiet people we have are on tour. That's the one thing you guys all have in common, but... Is everybody from your part of the world like that? Or how come I see maniacs on TV? <laughs> That's a good question. I think we got some maniacs from our <laughs> part of the country. I think. I, I know you do. I just don't think they would make good tournament bass fishermen. I think, as you've stated many times, you know, the low-key, like, flatliners that are mellow – and can handle a stressful situation, make your best tournament anglers. And, you know, whether you're from Minnesota or Wisconsin, I think the guys that we have on tour right now, for sure, fit that, you know, mellow, laid back. Um, There's definitely some that are high energy from this part of the country in this state that are good tournament anglers too. But for whatever reason, the ones that have come out of Minnesota and Wisconsin last couple of years are pretty laid back. I've always wondered why there's not more from here. From like the, I mean, you spend any time in Minnesota or Wisconsin, everybody fishes, everybody hunts, everybody's about the outdoors. Yeah. But if you compare that, so the amount of people that fish tournaments in the state to the amount that have made it at a national level, like literally, I mean, previous to Seth, Jim Moyna. Yeah. Like like they're, it's really, I mean, a small group of people have, have, have made it. Uh, why yeah. do you think that is? Do you think? Um, I think we're just starting to see the beginning of it from here. Yeah. Uh, you've the tournament history in Minnesota is pretty rich all the way back to the, you know, seventies, eighties, you had, you know, the lenders have obviously had a huge impact here and uh, Al and Ron, I believe used to fish Bassmaster events yeah. a lot time ago and um you've got names like capra and life for man yeah. all of these guys that have been around for a while that honestly if they wanted to could have fished professionally but i think their career choices and um you know they had good jobs or owned companies and were doing well that that way and they they knew the life that it was on the road and just chose not to and then you had moina kind of break the mold um and he was kind of the original you know, guy that traveled nationally and then Seth really broke the mold. And now I think you're starting to see it trickle down. We've always had really good anglers in our state, but I think it was very much multi-species. Yeah. And now bass fishing in the Midwest is becoming a lot more popular than it was probably five to 10 years ago. And because of that, I think you're starting to see, you know, these guys progress through that system of high school, college, or instead of college, they're fishing the opens and onto the elite series. 
And so I think we're just starting to see the beginning of it. There's guys fishing locally now that absolutely have the talent. It's just a matter of the stars aligning in the opens for them to get in. You deal with something that I deal with and other people have a hard time even understanding that it's a thing you deal with called seasons. Yeah. And, uh, how do you think, uh, like I told somebody once, a friend of mine from Texas, and I'm like, yeah, it's bass opener that day. Um, and he's like, bass opener, why would you ever have a closer? <laughs> he found it so bizarre that we would have an opening day for bass fishing. But um, how do you think that affects your the sport, just having seasons? And I don't mean as a resource and that sort of thing, because we're yeah. not biologists, but I just mean it's different to have seasons like that. Yeah. There is some positives, some negatives from it, I think. Yeah, I mean, the positives, obviously, is our fishing is amazing. And when you go fishing up here, you're getting a ton of bites and a lot of feedback and you're able to dial in techniques and tackle and all that stuff. The drawback is our experience level is way less than a guy from the south that can theoretically fish 12 months out of the year and really hone his craft 12 months out of the year. Whereas here it's, you know, the middle of May until ice up. And so it's leaves you six, maybe seven months on a good year. Um, so our time to really hone our craft is a lot shorter up here than it is down south. Um, which I always thought was a huge drawback and was a reason why we saw less people on tour from up here. Um, but I, the more I look at it or think about that, I just don't, I think it's almost more of a confidence thing. At least it was for me. Like I didn't ever think I could compete with those guys down South because of that, because they were fishing all the time. Um, but I just, I don't think that's the case. I think we can honestly make up for it in terms of the quality of our fishing. And when you do go out, you can really dial in a technique probably faster than you would down South. Typically yeah. you're simply getting a lot more bites and a lot more feedback. And so you can maybe gain confidence in fishing a Ned rig, you know, five times faster up here than you maybe would um, late summer on a Tennessee river ledge type of place. Um, yeah. So, I don't know. It has its benefits and drawbacks, no doubt. Yeah. I, I think it, there's also a big benefit that nobody even stops to think of. Like when you look at the weeks and months leading up to bass season starting, mm -hmm. it actually has that. And I've explained to people that there's that it's just like one of the reasons that deer hunting is so whitetail hunting is so big is because it's such a limited window you can do it and so all year people looked forward to it so i do think that there is some benefits from that like the excitement around the industry and the, yes. the, the kickoff and stuff it also probably fuels an inordinate amount of chat board arguments and, and <laughs> people yeah. just want to go fishing <laughs> yeah there's tends to be a lot more uh chatter and arguments on those boards come like february march april and people really just need to get out on the water and fish <laughs> it's true it's true um do you do, are you a big ice ice fisherman not really i've i've done it before growing up um but no i'd rather open water fish i actually enjoy hunting you know later in in like the, if it's december and there's ice on the lakes i'd rather go hunting than go ice fishing 
So Hunt, what does hunting do for you? There's some anglers that they, they 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 have convinced the world that this is a big part of their success, their ability to just go hunting for a month and shut everything off. What does it do for you? Yeah, I mean, I'd have to agree with that. I think for me, it does a couple things. Like number one, I can take my mind off of tournament bass fishing, which can be stressful at times and you kind of step away from that world. Um, and so it allows my brain to break, but I also think I learn a lot sitting in the stand or hunting that teaches me just about animals and critters and nature in general. Like there's actually a lot of similarities between how deer relate to different things as fish relate to different things. And so I think just continuing to be in tune with the outdoors and nature in general helps me pick up on things on the water that maybe others might not think of. So just how deer relate to edges, bass are the same way. It's kind of weird in that sense, but they do. So I don't know, just helps me stay in tune with things, which I'm not just stuck in a building all the time. And um, I think that certainly helps. You said it, it helps you turn off tournament bass fishing in your head. Like how often, realistically, how often are you thinking about fishing in a 24 hour period? Mm. <laughs> uh, probably more than is healthy for me. I, guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's pretty constant. Like we were at the cabin this last weekend helping get them closed down for the year. My grandpa has a couple cabins in Northern Minnesota and I didn't bring my boat over there, which is pretty rare. I pretty much always bring it with me. And it was difficult for me to not want to like go grab a rod and start fishing out there. It was on my mind quite a bit. So. And what drives that? Is that, is that I need to be on the water to get better to achieve this, or it's just the exact same thing that drove you to run to the end of a dock when you were 14 years old, as soon as you yeah. got to a lake, is it that same drive that you just, I, I need to do more of that. Yeah. It's still the same drive as when I was a kid. Like some people say they want fish if it weren't for tournament bass fishing. And for me, it's just not that way. Like I am like giddy every time I got my boat behind the truck and I'm going to the lake, whether it's for a tournament or for fun, like I just am ate up with it whether it's bass fishing or, um, you know, I do some fly fishing for trout too. I've musky fished a little bit, just whatever it is fishing wise. I just, I'm just ate up with it and always want to know how to catch them that day and figure it out. And so it's, for me, it's just, I grew up in a family of people that fished. And so it's just kind of in my blood. Yeah, one of um, I'm not sure which relative it is to you, uh, an uncle or something that's <laughs> yeah. a hardcore fly angler. Yes. He thinks that he he actually went out of his way to ask, could you fly fish on the Elite Series? So is this something yeah. that we will expect to see in the future? You fly fishing on the Elite Series? Uh, he sure thinks that I should be carrying <laughs> a fly rod with me. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, he's way, I mean, I've got a couple uncles that are way into fly fishing and that's kind of what's impacted me from that side of things growing up. They got me into it. And so I still do it, not a ton, but a couple times a year. And then my dad's side of the family is more 
very conventional gear, multi-species anglers. So from both sides, it's come at me and they've all had an impact on me in one way or another. Yeah. Do you, do you think there is actually a situation where fly fishing would be the right? Yeah. Well, last year on the river, I took him out for fun. And if you fish the Mississippi enough, you'll, there's these little pin minnows is what I call them. They're tiny, tiny minnows. Uh-huh. And he's got some flies that imitate them really well. And if they're dialed into that size bait, like a fly rod is probably the best way to go. And he just crushed me out of the back of the boat with a fly rod. Wow. So there's made like super small windows where it could play. Like I could see it on the St. Lawrence River. If there's fish like up cruising on sand flats and you know, you can't get them to go on conventional gear. I could yeah. see like any fly playing out there. So um, <laughs> maybe, I'll, maybe I'll sling a fly on the St. Lawrence next year. We'll see. Oh, that would, I think it would be awesome. I mean, I, I, I'm pretty sure if you kicked everybody's butt, they would all get together and make it illegal quick. Uh, <laughs> all of a sudden to be like, uh, no rods with excessive bendiness. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't think you'd like dominate with it, but there might be a fish or two where it might play. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure in the right situation. Yeah. Um, I, I just threw my head uh, like Legends of Bass Fishing, like Tommy Biffle is in my head. Like Tommy, but the moment Tommy Biffle realizes I got to learn to fly fish, <laughs> Sharon, we're leaving this sport. <laughs> it would, uh, yeah, um, there's not, there it seems to be like some bass guys just can't stand fly fishermen and vice versa but i don't know for me it's all just fishing and i I love it all no matter what it is yeah i agree i'm i'm very much a multi-species person i find it weird like i think it's so weird when you do like you said there's people who say if tournaments went away i'd sell my boat and everything to me that's just the oddest thing in the like yeah. I fell in love with fishing long before I fell in love with tournaments. Tournaments to me, the thing that tournaments add, in my opinion, is, and it, this is way before you make a living like you have, but tournaments force you to be a better angler. They force you to learn to do things that you wouldn't do. Because if you want to just sling a jig for the rest of your life, and yeah. that's the only way you want to catch them, you can't, but you can't in tournaments. Even yeah. Caleb Kufal has got to catch a smallmouth bass every once in a while, no matter how hard he tries not to. Yes. How? Tell me about your relationship with him and Pat Schlopper. The the three of you guys. I, I part of me thinks it like makes total sense that you guys are all buddies, but then the other part of me is like, do they all just sit around the campfire and not even talk? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't know. I knew of Pat. Uh, but I didn't know him personally. Like I fished against Pat locally on the river and, uh, but I never knew him personally. And then I just reached out to him after he qualified through the opens. Cause I was in that situation two years prior and just said, Hey, if you ever need anything, let me know um, any questions about whatever. And we've just kind of started a friendship through that. And then Caleb and I, we fished the 2019 central opens at the same time. That was our first year fishing the opens we both won an open that year and we qualified for the elites that year so we kind of had a similar path to the elite series and we happened to camp next to each other at like two of those opens 
and didn't share information at the time, but just got to know each other. And then as our, you know, elite series careers have progressed, we've, you know, now we're, we're comparing notes in practice and we're not sharing spots or anything like that, but, you know, certain baits or techniques and depth ranges and that sort of stuff. And it's just kind of slowly progressed and being from the same part of the country, I think we can kind of all relate to each other. Um, so it's not like we'll see, we don't see each other in the off season and we'll talk a little bit in the off season, but during tournament weeks and like planning for tournaments next year, we'll definitely keep in touch for sure. So. So do, do all three of you guys share information or is it just, is it, is it all three of you that are share a little bit? And Yeah, we've gotten to the point where all three of us are bouncing ideas off of each other. And I think for me, I've had to learn how to process that information that still is uh, not going to derail me and yeah. throw me off on some rat race doing something that I've never done before. I think there's a level of information sharing that you have to somewhat take with a grain of salt. Not that I don't trust those guys, but I also have to stay true to myself and do what I'm confident in um, to be able to succeed. Like in terms of our style, like Caleb is very much like a John Cox, like does a few things and does it really well. And yeah. onto it, he's going to be deadly doing it. Uh, Pat is very versatile and, you know, has, 20 rods on his deck and can do numerous things. And I'm kind of in the middle of those two. And so um, if Pat's off, you know, throwing a seven inch mag draft and doing something that I just don't do a lot of, and he's catching them that way, I'm not going to like go buy 10 mag drafts that night and start doing it. So there's, there's a level of information that you can certainly use to help yourself, but you got to be careful with it too. Which one of those two is most likely to lie? <laughs> well so i don't think caleb intends he doesn't lie but he's an extremely humble person to the point where he'll say like he caught 15 pounds that day and he's gonna weigh in 20 probably and so he's not like i don't think he's doing it purposefully but he's just that's just his demeanor and Pat's kind of on the opposite end. Like if Pat's having a bad day, you know about it. If he's having a good day, you know about it. So it's good to have a mixed personalities though, that way. So, so you're not going to answer the question is what you No. No. Okay. <laughs> All right. You ever, you ever think about going by Robert? Um, not really. My parents have always called me Bob. So, yeah. Yeah. Robert Downey. Bobby, but it's only specific people in my life. Old Bob. Oh, I like old Bob. And, and it doesn't, you know, it, it, it can mean different things to different people. And, um, uh, I don't know how it ended up there, but it, it, it is a thing people. I mean, how did, how, how did a llama become a thing? If a, like I tell people all the time, if, if, a, if llama can be a thing, anything yeah. can be a thing. So, uh, no, I think it works. I think it works. Speaking of working and your career, what is your goal? What what is if this all works out exactly how you want, and you can paint this storybook career for yourself? How does it? What does it look like? I mean, I think doing well enough to 
provide for my family is kind of priority number one. I don't want to be the person that chases this dream until I'm in like extreme debt or something foolish like that. Um, I think I have a good enough like big picture um, outlook on things and I've seen what can happen in other careers leading up to this and the success you can have in other places beyond tournament bass fishing. Despite as passionate as I am about this, um, that's like priority number one. And if I can do that, I want to, you know, continue to do it and make it a career. I, I love doing it. I love working with sponsors, filming stuff, photos. I mean, when I go and film with uh, Omnia, for example, it doesn't even really feel like work to me. It's just, <laughs> I'm out there educating, which I enjoy. Um, so I want to continue to do it as long as I can do it financially in a responsible way. Beyond that, um, you know, the first couple of years was like, let's just survive. Let's get through these first couple of years. The way they were doing cuts the last couple of years was difficult to hang around. Um, so I wanted to make sure that I hang around and make it through that storm. Um, I'm hoping that going forward, it's things will change a little bit to the point where it's a little easier to hang around. And now that I've had a, a year of what I would say is a decent year qualifying for the classic, doing decent in points, it's given me the confidence to start thinking about other things besides just not getting cut, you know, getting in that top 10 for AOI, you know, starting to compete for classics if you're qualifying for them consistently, that, that sort of deal. And Honestly, you know, winning a blue trophy, it came close this year, a um, couple times, especially the first one, um, but it gives you a taste that you can do it and you just need to stick with, with it and keep working hard and some of that stuff will hopefully fall into place over time. How heavy is that weight of stand, like early in your career of like, I need to not get cut? It's big, honestly, like for me, especially not having a lot of national experience and not knowing if I could compete. Um, it's, it's a big deal that is talked about probably more amongst the anglers than the general public knows about. Um, I think it's, especially the last two years with you know, a lot of people getting cut last year, it was a big topic of discussion for sure. Um, I mean, the way it was, you had to average like 55th or better each year to hang around. And that's not easy to do against that group. So no, it's, no, it's, you know, you got to put it in the back of your head and just focus on catching bass. That's really what all this boils down to. Um, if you can do that well, you don't really have those concerns, but it's easier said than done to put that in the back of your head. Yeah. And the more it looms, the more, you know, like it's easy to be like, I need to get better at this and catch bigger fish and whatever. But yeah, if you're below a cut line and you realize that I might need a different job next year, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's hard to focus on what's going on. Is that, is that the biggest difference than like before, when you decided, hey, I'm going to fish the opens and hopefully I qualify, see what opportunities come my way. Mm -hmm. Is that the biggest difference that you realize from, yeah. from, from what you thought the Elite Series is to what it actually is three years into your career? 
yeah job security is like not there on the elites and you know unless you're really crushing it and doing well consistently year after year you know it's unlike any other career or job where if you bust your butt and do what you're supposed to do in most jobs you don't really have a concern about job security whereas on the elite series you can work as hard as you possibly can things might not fall into place you know there's a lot of uncontrollables and you might have a couple bad years and it's tough hop but um i think for the most part you know if you do work hard at it and and put your entire soul into it that you can dig your way out of those situations too and you can be successful at it and and i think what you just said there is the truth too you put your whole soul into it like wanting it like i mean paul next said it on last week's show he's like i asked him do you love what you do he said love isn't strong enough he said he said you'd fall out of love with this sport if it was just love that was keeping you there you need to be obsessed it needs to be everything you know it needs to and yeah and it's true. Like, I mean, you, you, and, and I think that that's one of the biggest realities. People come to the elite series and they think, oh, the pressure is going to be off. I made, cause, cause you're, it's such a, yeah. it's so tough to get there. You know what I mean? Like, oh, wow, I made it. And now you're like, okay, now it's, but it's a whole different, it's like the pressure just ratchets up. And, yeah. and I think if you start quick, like Jay secure it, a lot of that pressure falls away, but but I mean, the pressure gets you at some point, regardless, because when you start that hot, people want you to continue that hot. So it's I think that's the truth about pro fishing, that there's like whether you're Jay Secure or Rick Clun, you are under pressure to can to keep this dream alive. Yeah. And even, you know, if you're not concerned about getting cut, then you're concerned about making the classic. And then if you're making the classic, you're concerned about getting in the top 10 for like an AOI bonus or something like that. So there's always something that's pushing you, which is honestly how it should be. Like at this level of the sport, you look at any other professional level sports, if you don't perform, you don't last very long. And that's why the elites are the elites. I mean, that's why we've got the crop of anglers that we have is because, you know, if you don't do well, you get cut and the next group comes in. And so I think that's how it needs to be to create the level of a sport that we have. Um, But it just makes for a situation where you're constantly grinding and constantly working. But if you're successful at any career in life, that's what you got to do. So did you ever in these three years, did you ever have that point where you were driving home thinking, man, uh, this ain't going to work out for me? <laughs> um, last year, so my rookie year, I had a decent year, almost qualified for the classic and f- fell out in the last event. Last year, I had a shot, but then after Champlain, the, which was the second to last event, I fell down to the point where I was like, I need to make a cut at the St. Lawrence or I'm not going to be here uh, again. And so driving from Champlain to the St. Lawrence last year was the one time where I felt like, well, we're going to see what's going to happen this next week. And we may be around in 2022 or we may not. And that was the one time so far where I felt like, geez, 
might not work out, but fortunately I had a good week there and I'm still around. So it's just one of those deals where when that stuff happens, I try not to let it get it get to me mentally and just kind of let things like work hard, do your best, put forth your best effort and see where the chips are going to fall. And, um, you know, if it's meant to be, it's going to happen. If not, you'll fall on your feet and bounce back up somewhere else. So that's gotta be the, one of the weirdest things in pro fishing and everybody says it. And I do believe it. I've seen it enough when it's meant to be, it's meant to be you, whether you, you know, like you can try derail it, but if it's meant to be, but yeah. that's also got to drive people crazy too, because you see other people, Jay secure who we've talked about. It's awfully tough for a lot of people that have been around a long time to look at Jay secure and be like, well, he put in his dues, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like, how do you think people stay sane in a sport where we try to accept the fact that like, when it's my time, it's my time. Well, what if it's never somebody's time? Yeah, I think the longer into your career you go without a win or a major title, it probably wears on you more um, than if you're just a couple of years in. So I don't know know if I can answer that question for someone that's maybe been doing it 15 years it's probably harder for them to accept that it's meant to be than maybe myself at this point um, the one time or tournament that helped me understand that the best was Grand Lake when I did win that open um, in 2019 there was several scenarios where I should not have landed fish and I landed fish um, I was flipping heavy cover bushes and trees and you're bound to, you know, lose 25% of those fish when you're doing that at minimum. And I think, you know, I landed like 95% of the fish that week, several that were stuck way down in the bush and I had to go in and get um, several late in the day calls that helped me um, caught like a two and a half pounder in the last half hour that called out a two pounder and I won by eight ounces. And so stuff like that allowed me to better understand that saying that we hear thrown around so much in this sport. Um, doesn't make it any easier, no doubt. Like it can be tough to accept that, but I saw it happen firsthand and kind of understand that it's truly, it is a thing, I think, or at least I believe it is. Maybe not everybody does, but I believe that it is. Um, and for me, it almost gives me a sense of calm a little bit when you're in those situations where you're maybe in the top five going into the last day, you don't stress as much about it. You just go out and do your job, do the best you can and let the chips fall where they may. Um, and so for me, it helps a little bit to calm myself down. What, what are the stressful moments for you? Like, is it while you're competing or I would also think that the, while somebody's competing, the stress is kind of off because they're actually focused on what they're doing. And maybe yeah. the stress would be leading up to things. Where are the stressful moments for you? I think it's always like the lead up time to those events starting, you know, sitting at home preparing for a couple of weeks before you go and, you know, practice sometimes if we got an off day before the event. I think, like you said, once you're out there, um, you know, you almost go into this mode of 
I don't know, you don't, you, you kind of forget about all the stress and you're just like reacting to what's going on in front of you more so than thinking and overthinking like you do when you lead up to the event. So I'd say leading up to them is probably the most stressful part. When, when you're actually competing, when you've left the dock, you get to your first spot and you're actually competing, how much of your thought is on everything that's going on there? Like, it, do you think of anything else during a competition day? Not really. Like really? Was, yeah. I mean, and by that, I don't know if you mean like off the water things. Is that what you're referring yeah, to? Yeah, just, I mean, dude, in my head, yeah. whenever I compete in tournaments, I would think about all sorts of different things. But more and more, I'm learning that that's the greatest asset that you guys have. Like you literally, and I don't want to answer the question for you, but more and more anglers that I talk to say that like it's all about like now it might be where's that camera boat or who's that yeah. pulling in there but it's still all about yeah trying to catch the next fish yeah for me it's pretty much like 100 percent. i mean and honestly i feel very fortunate to be able to do that in a because of things off the water for me right now are really good like have an extremely supportive wife, very supportive family and friends, a great group of sponsors behind me, um, you know, a good home life. All, you know, those things are all, you know, I feel blessed to have that right now. And I understand that's not how it's always going to be in life. But for right now, I'm fortunate that in the place I'm at, it's really good. And that allows me to be, you know, 100% focused on the water at this point. Um, so, you know, long-term, is it always gonna be like that? Probably not. Like there's just things that are gonna come up in life that are gonna, you know, distract you and you have to deal with those and maybe take your focus away from tournament fishing some. But right now I feel really fortunate that I can be that focused on the water. Any of your goals, when I asked you what your goals, it was to provide for my family, to be stable in this sport. Do any of your goals end with trophies? Like, are you, is that way you're looking or is it just, I need to make a living at this sport and be sustained? Or is it like, man, I want to be angler of the year. I want to be classic champion. I want to be everything, but I'm a professional angler. So I'm never going to say that out loud. <laughs> Part of it is that, like, I think if anybody who's at this level has done it long enough to know that, like, when you start saying those things, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot a little bit. But no doubt, I want to win blue trophies. I'd love to win an angler of the year. I'd love to win a classic. Um, 100%. And I'm driven to do that, no doubt. Um, but first and foremost, I want to have a stable career. And, you know, be remembered as someone who's gone about it the right way. And, um, you know, whether that means helping guys on the water or treating guys on the water as though I'd want to be treated, um, you know, being a stand-up person off the water that, you know, works hard for the companies that support me, all those sorts of things are very important to me along with trying to pursue winning trophies is going about it the right way. And, um, 
you know, treating people with respect and um, making sure that, you know, I'm remembered as someone that did it the right way and not, not someone that cut corners, I guess. I would say you're definitely well on your way there. I mean, if you don't have to look any further than to look what uh, Lee and, and Matt did this year to run a boat out to you. And, and I mean, you know, those guys, but it's not like, like, do you and Lee talk on the phone or anything like that? No. I don't no, because I, really. I, I believe I had to give him like when we called you that day from, I gave him your number. So I was like, it was, but, it, but it's also the, everybody knows you do that for them. I mean, you just, it, there is a real brotherhood on the road. And uh, I'd say you're a bit, very big accepted part of, of that brotherhood. So, um, well, thank you. Yeah. What, what did you think Lee Livesey and Matt Robertson are coming up and uh, did you hear them? Or well, did you hear the boat or the chingling of beer cans first? <laughs> uh, well, that's a good question is probably an even tie between those two. <laughs> but no, it was good. I mean, Lee's an awesome dude. Um, Matt, the same way, really good character guys. I've got to know him the last couple of years and um, for them to drop everything, throw gas in the boat and come out there and give me a chance to at least move around on the last day and fish some areas that I didn't think I was going to be able to get to was phenomenal. Um, and my, the way my boat was, they were able to hobble around and follow me just at lower speeds. Um, so they stuck with me for the rest of the day too, to make sure that Lee's boat didn't break down. Um, and then like two days later, I found a nice surprise in the live well. There was like 15 beers in my live well. <laughs> so, so I don't think they really minded following me around and listening to some music that afternoon. But uh, no, they, they were awesome. They're good dudes, and I can't thank them enough. They really are. What's it like living on the road? Like, what's that part of your life like? Like, you sleep in, in a camper, right? Yeah, I got a truck camper that I haul around with me. And I really debated how I was going to travel. You know, in the opens, I just stayed in a tent. I had a pop-up tent that I'd set up at a campground. And it was fine for four tournaments, but I didn't want to do it for nine events across the country. And, I mean, if it's raining or, like, 95 degrees, it's just pretty miserable in a tent. So... <laughs> I did away with the tent, got a truck camper, and I I love it. Like it's, um, I love being in the outdoors in general. So camping kind of suits my style, and I can do things on my own time, have my own routine, my own bed, that sort of deal. And you get to know some of the other guys at camp, so I enjoy it. There's certainly moments where you're wondering, like, what am I doing? You know? <laughs> Like some of the bathrooms at some of these campgrounds are like, I don't know if they've been cleaned in like a year and some of them, some of them are nicer than my bathroom at home, but most of them are pretty, pretty gnarly. So you're kind of like, eh, well, maybe I should be renting homes or something like that, but it's been good. I enjoy it. And uh, my wife's got to travel with me a little bit this last year too. It's fun having her along and she enjoys camping too. So it's been good. Is Caleb still really in the back of his truck? He hasn't even done the camper thing. He's literally in the back of his truck. He's in the back of his truck. 
Yeah. Do you ever like when it's horrible weather out? Do you ever feel like inviting him in or just uh, screw him? Bad decision he made. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's come over a few times when it's been raining just to chat for din around dinner time so he don't doesn't have to eat. <laughs> but I couldn't do it. Like I don't know. It's it suits him though. He enjoys it and it's convenient for him in and out of places. But I couldn't do it. I think yeah. he talks to Rick Klon a lot about it because up until like six years ago, that's what Rick did too. And so they compare truck <laughs> camper notes. I, think. I mean, uh, I just feel at some point you, uh, you're working hard all day. You should at least sleep. I mean, you spend, it's a big part of your life. Like, I mean, I would just think at some point I'm not I'm not going to be focused on fishing because I'm worried like I can't move my shoulder because I was <laughs> sleeping inside of a truck. Um, what you yeah, but maybe, in, he'll, maybe he'll upgrade here at some point. I don't know. I think it's time. I really do. I think it's time. I mean, he's uh, his he career enough success. To yeah. 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 Probably. It's cool to see all you guys, all three of you guys. I think all three of you probably had your best seasons ever this year, yeah. correct? Yeah, so, no doubt. Yeah, it's fun. You kind of feed off of each other, and it's fun to see the group do well. I think you see that with with a lot of groups, like Drew Cook and Drew Benton, and yeah. Mullen. you know they they had phenomenal seasons, and they've have had phenomenal seasons for the last several years. And you see that with you know Gussie and Seth and. I mean, those guys, Johnston's, yeah, phenomenal. But yeah, yeah. So it's cool to see groups like that feed off of each other, and it kind of pushes pushes you to, you know, raise the bar a little bit. It's funny. It it, it um, and I, I always kind of blame the Johnsons on it a little bit, but it like in the past, the amount of anglers that worked together was it was a rarity. Like it was like, did you know so and so works with so and so? Like it was a rarity, and now it's like it's a rarity to have an angler that doesn't work with anybody. You, you know, for the most part, they've all, there's a lot of different teams out there working together. Uh, and I don't know if that's the age of the anglers got a lot younger or, you know, I mean, the Johnsons, they have the same freaking bank account. So, I mean, that's how they've just always done it. Like from when they were little kids, like literally what they both win goes into one account. So it, it's, it's crazy, but it's like, the cool thing about their team that I always think is one advantage they have over almost anyone is, I mean, it, it's your brother. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. it, and they fished so many hours together. Like if one of them's not like, they both have faith in each other too. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure there's times where, you know, whatever technique it, it's just it's human nature of the sport, but there's certain things where, well, Caleb Kufal, who loves to fish a jig, if yeah. if somebody else to fish a jig through that area, I'm sure in the back of his head, he's like, yeah, but did they fish it right? Did they? Yeah. But Yes. Yeah, it's like the Johnstons are like when you – I grew up playing hockey, and so when I played left wing and when you got two other line mates that you have great chemistry with, you like know where everybody is at one time and you trust them and you know what they're doing and – I think the Johnstons kind of have that being brothers that they don't have to second guess anything that either one of them is doing. Like they have that chemistry and being brothers obviously too helps. So 
they're they're pretty deadly with what they do, no doubt. Yeah, they're 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 pretty good. Uh, we're, we've started to figure out one thing on this show. Um, it's one episode into figuring it out, but I think you guys are the greatest case sample. We're trying to find out: Have you ever seen UFOs or anything in your travels? <laughs> no, nothing. Do you? Yeah. So do you? What's your take? UFOs? I, I don't it, pay attention to them necessarily either. Okay. Like seeking them out, I guess. Okay. Uh, yeah. Do, do you believe that there's extraterrestrial lives out there? Or? I don't know. That's a tough one. <laughs> I, I would say there's certainly objects flying in the sky that are unidentified to everyday humans. Like there's probably some humans that could tell you, yeah, that's what this is. But there might be something shooting across the sky that most of us don't recognize and might call it a UFO, but I imagine somebody knows what it is. What about Sasquatch? What's your take on that? Um, I don't think, I don't think so. No Sasquatch. No, I've spent enough time in the woods. I feel like I would run across one by now, but. (laughs) (laughs) If you did, would you shoot it or what? Like what, what is the right move? Like if a Sasquatch comes across, uh, that's a great question. I mean, you hold a musky wrong and people will crucify you on Facebook. I could only imagine the hate that comes with shooting Sasquatch or not shooting Sasquatch. There'll be groups from both sides fighting for that. What do you think the right thing to do is? I would have to like probably see if I could follow it and do some investigating. Like I'd probably not just let them walk by and sit there. I'd have to like go after it. You were just going to track Sasquatch. I don't know if that's a smart move, dude. <laughs> I feel like, uh, I don't I mean, know. That's the only way I'd get some more evidence. So that's what I'd have to do. You just follow it and try to track it. And, all right. Yeah. So, but to be clear, you don't think that there is such a thing as Sasquatch? I don't think so. No. Hmm. I've heard some wild stuff out in the woods no doubt that you wonder like what was that sort of thing but like what what's the craziest stuff you heard out there down in florida at the st john's i heard some like i was on the water on lake george and there was some what i'm not i'm like that was the first time i've been to florida in that <laughs> area and, like <laughs> i don't know what it was i don't do they have monkeys down there I don't know. I, I think in some parts, actually, I think um, Wild somebody monkey. was telling me about there's like an island or something where they had a bunch of monkeys because they shot a movie or I don't know. So, so you That's heard monkeys, cool. primal, That's something cool. primal. It some, sounded very primal. Yes. Could have been Matt Robertson. Lord <laughs> only knows. Uh, on, on tour, who do you who do you look to on tour? Like who who are the guys you look at? And I'm like, man, that. That dude's got his stuff dialed together. That's where I want to be. Um, probably Polinic for me. Like him and I are only months apart in age, um, but we've been doing it. You know, here he he's been doing it way longer than I have, obviously. And just the success he's had, and um, he's just such a good human off the water too. Like, it really is. Like very approachable very down to earth no ego to him um 
always willing to help, yet at the same time is one of the most dangerous dudes on the water. <laughs> it's like he's to me is like the pinnacle of our sport in terms of you know being an amazing role model for younger kids coming up and um but just absolutely dominant on the water too he is he's 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 very special and uh, and so are you and you said something at the beginning of this little chat that i think is is really important you're yourself you know that the, the, one of the biggest mistakes people make in this industry i think over and over again i think everybody makes it in every business to a certain extent but you try to be what you think people want you to be and uh, really true success happens when you are yourself have you always been genuinely old bob or or were there times early on where you tried to be the next kvd or what or whatever you would want to be no i've always i feel like i've always been pretty true to myself i think you know as any kid growing up in middle school and high school and college you're trying to find your identity and you're searching but i feel like since you know my later years in high school through college and my working life and now where i'm at today i feel like i try and be pretty true to myself try and shoot people pretty straight and not really you know <laughs> i'm not a real, real flashy guy i'm not a real just dude but i feel like uh i'm gonna shoot you straight and i'm not really gonna give you a bunch of crap is kind of who i am pretty genuine pretty pretty much sums it up old bob <laughs> Is old Bob. I mean, and that I want you to be anything different, but I can guarantee you there will be a time when we'll have a conversation like this and those walls behind you will be adorned with trophies because uh, I think you're just starting to get your feet under you in this sport and uh, look out for old Bob Downey. Well, thanks, Dave. Appreciate it. Well, I had to end with saying something nice. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> it's what you, it's in the podcast manual. Thank oh, you yeah. very much for doing this. I've made nice comments about him. He's made nice comments about me. And hopefully you guys make nice comments about this show. Oh, Bob, you got anything else to say or no? Not really, man. I just appreciate you having me on. It's, it's an awesome opportunity and get to see yeah. you in the off season. So that's always good. And uh, looking forward to a few months off and getting back after it. Appreciate it, Dave. Oh, you're very welcome. See, old Bob did one of those things you got to do. I mean, you got to thank him for having you on. <laughs> you are awesome. Thank you very much. And we'll chat soon. See you guys. And there you have it. Old Bob Downey. And after spending a little time with him, I'm sure you, most of you agree. He's just, he's old Bob. I mean, it makes sense when you spend a little time with him. He's just old Bob and um, he's real. He's genuine and he's honest. And that's all I ever ask of the guests on this show. Just be yourself. It's all I ever ask of the guys in the Elite Series. You know, when they say stage tips and this and that, it's always the same. Just be yourself. Be real. Be honest. And, and people will gravitate to it. I mean, not everybody's going to be Gerald Swindle. But but I can guarantee you there's a bunch of you watching this that just like when you watch Gerald Swindle, you're like, ah, I love that Gerald Swindle guy. I love that old Bob dude because he's just like my brother. He's just like me. He's just like my cousin. He's, he's a real, genuine, and honest dude. And, um, 
And so is Gerald Swindle. Don't don't get my words confused. I mean, Gerald Swindle's just a little bit more pizzazz or razzle dazzle. Um, but that's what is the best thing about this show, if you ask me. Week after week, you guys get to eavesdrop on a conversation um, with somebody that um, that I think matters in the outdoors and uh, and people like old Bob matter. So um, let me know who you'd like to see on this show. I mean, the, the, I mean, everybody eventually, hopefully, will be on this show. But who would you guys like to see on this show? Who do you think's up for a real conversation? Like we have on this show. And um, hey, speaking of real, it's real cool that you guys continue to let this thing grow. 155,000 subscribers so far on YouTube. Every week it grows. Thank you. If you're listening to us on another streaming platform, make sure to give us a rating or a like or however that works, a review. Or if you want to see what it all looks like, um, not just a voice. Come to YouTube and give us a sub there. I appreciate all of your support. Week after week, I'll be here with a real conversation with a real person. And um, I really hope you guys join us too. Without further ado, Bob Cop, take it away. Thanks for watching. Please like, comment, and subscribe. Because Bob Cobb of the Bassmasters told you to. You hear?